My name is Vidya Ramalingam, and I am co-founder of Moonshot CVE. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. All right, so I know it's a little awkward because this is the first time we're going to make very intense eye contact throughout this. So I know that that can be a little, uh, uh, you know, shocking at first, but I think we can get through this together. Um, So, you know, part of the work that you all have done has obviously focused on online related issues. Um, And yet you're coming from a background in which you have spent a lot of time with extremists and white nationalists in particular on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about what you bring from that experience to the work that you're doing with Moonshot now? Yeah, I, I mean, every everything about the work I do now is shaped, it's shaped by my background in the offline space. I am not a technologist. I don't have a hidden computer science degree, although now I, I wish I could go back into time and maybe do that. Um, my entry point into this came about 12 years ago. Um, I have an anthropology degree and anthropology background, and I, I spent a couple years doing field research with um, white nationalists. So I, I actually am American, grew up in New Jersey. I um, moved to Scandinavia and spent two years years meeting with white nationalists in Sweden, attending their rallies, um, conducting life history interviews with them, just getting to know them. And over the course of those years, I, I got to know them pretty well. They invited me into their homes. I met their family members, their wives, their kids, spent a lot of time with them. And for me, that was a pivotal moment, which helped me understand, first of all, what gets people into these movements. I, I started to see them really as human beings who had very real stories and rational stories and um, explanations as to how they got there. And they embraced you because, or they allowed you access to their families, et cetera, for, for what reason? It was because you... Of your approach or because they were interested in being studied? How does that work? Well, embrace is a strong word. They, <laughs> they were open to me spending time with them. And I, I think they were open. They were open to me for a few reasons. One is I, I simply think they were a bit bewildered and confused as to why a woman of color, especially someone from America, I wasn't an immigrant to Sweden. Um, they, they were confused why I was there, confused why I wanted to talk to them. Hmm. I approached them with a pretty non-judgmental uh, demeanor and, and my questions were non-judgmental. When I started talking to them, I just asked them very simple questions about why they were there, what they believed in, how they got there, um, about their family background. Um, and so even though they knew I would I didn't agree with them, obviously, they knew I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of color. I'm Indian American. Um, they knew I have an immigrant background. My parents were immigrants to the United States. So they knew I didn't agree with them, but they were willing to have conversations when they were asked nonjudgmental questions. And that mm. opened up a lot of doors. It allowed us to get started. And then once we got to know each other, we, you know, we were able to ask, I was able to ask more probing and more direct questions. I think I saw you say once that the confusion and curiosity they had somehow opened up the doors Um, but but is it just because they were um, shocked that somebody would want to spend that time with them I think they anticipated that someone who looked like me would be the enemy and would approach them as the enemy 
And they were surprised when someone who looked like me approached them with a smile on their face. Hmm. Um, you know, I did my best to go up to them with a smile on my face and just ask them questions. And that was disarming because, you know, they, they might have approached me with a wall up and, and been prepared to be talking to the enemy. But they suddenly realized, actually, this person doesn't see us as an enemy. And maybe she's not an enemy either. And so that opened us up to detailed conversations about their past, about their families, about the you know their childhood and how they grew up. We didn't start with the ideology. We started mm. with simple questions about who they were and also who I was. You know, they had questions about who I was and they it was important for them to get to know me as well. You, you have this background. You've done the research. These same uh, ideas you're trying to apply in understanding and finding doors to open in an online space uh, dealing with extremism. Is that an accurate way to sort of look at it? Yeah, that is accurate. I mean, one of one of the key learnings from that work over 10 years ago was that human interactions were so often what got people into these movements. I mean, when I when I learned the stories that that drew people into these movements, it was almost always about personal interactions and really strong relationships they had built with people in the movements. So I, I started to realize that actually, you know, if it's relationships relationships that can get people into these movements, well, it's got to be relationships that can get people out. Mm. And over the years before setting up Moonshot, I spent a lot of time sitting down with and working with intervention programs in Europe. So some of the programs in Germany and Sweden, which have tested counseling and one-to-one intervention approaches, basically social work approaches, with people who are in neo-Nazi movements to get them out. Mm. And there's a lot of evidence around the efficacy of those sorts of interpersonal one-to-one counseling methods to get people out of these movements. So, you know, but I got to yeah, yeah, sure. say, Go like, ahead. so when you talk about sort of one to one, how do you create a similar um, atmosphere when so much of this is happening in an online space? I don't know. And, that, and that's maybe an important thing to say up front is that so much of this work online is experimental. Mm-hmm. You know, we are we are testing this out. Do I believe it's possible? Yes. I'm optimistic about what's possible online, partially because, you know, I I grew up in, um, you know, the generation that started to explore the internet in the late 90s. You know, I spent a lot of time online myself as a disgruntled teenager, um, you know, talking to strangers online. And I remember that feeling of feeling a connection with someone, um, you know, as as a teenager talking online to strangers around the world. Now, I never got into that much trouble. So, you know, I know this is gonna be published. So before my father or mother hear this and, and freak out. Um, you know, but I, I I feel optimistic about what's possible in terms of connecting online. We are working now to build an evidence base around the efficacy of testing out social work methods online. There's a lot of evidence that can be drawn from other sectors that have transitioned social work online over the past couple of decades. So for example, the suicide prevention space, suicide prevention practitioners over 10 years ago were testing whether or not you could reach out to individuals who are indicating that they might that they might be interested in suicide and try and pull them back from the ledge online. Mm-hmm. Um, we are modeling that same transition to the online space for the CVE counterterrorism sector. And again, I caution saying it's experimental programming. Even for us as an organization, we are four and a half years old. We are still generating evidence around the efficacy. But what I can say is that we've generated enough evidence at this stage that the audience at risk of white supremacy or, or right-wing extremism online has an appetite for support. 
you know, we've offered social support content, mental health content, self-help guides to neo-Nazi and white supremacist audiences in the United States, in the UK, in Australia. And across the board, we consistently find that these audiences are disproportionately likely to engage with that content when offered it as compared to the general public. So this is really important. And I remember when you put out this study, I remember being really fascinated by that specific point about um, the willingness to engage in or investigate mental health ads in particular on these online spaces. Can you talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like? So the the way that this works, we're, we're basically using and testing methods which have been used for a long time in the commercial space. So by, you know, big corporates to sell us products, those sorts of corporates, whether it's Coca-Cola, Adidas, Nike, they find aspects of our digital footprint online, which tell us that we're interested in buying soda or her sneakers or any other product. And they'll then match us with advertisements, which try and get us to spend more money. It's right. And by the way, as somebody who um, has a range of different people in their home using the same computer, (laughs) it's incredible what I learn about, let's just say my family, when I see the ads that are trying to target me. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we're all familiar with that, where you get followed around the internet by one thing you searched for a couple months ago, and it'll never leave leave you. Um, It's very annoying, actually. (laughs) That same methodology is what we are using to try and reach people who are at risk of violent extremism and offer them some form of support. Um, advertising is a great way of doing this. We basically reach individuals who, you know, maybe through their search behavior, maybe they've searched on Google for information about joining the KKK or about supporting a white power group. Um, and this is a methodology that we've been delivering in partnership with the ADL, whereby we were pairing those individuals with advertisements, offering them in the first instance, counter ideological material. Mm-hmm. That same methodology can be used to offer individuals social support. Um, This is something that we tested out a couple years back in Australia, working with neo-Nazi individuals online there. Um, Basically, we set up a program with regional government in Australia to redirect neo-Nazi users in the state of Victoria towards a mental health program. Now, I want to be really clear here, because when I say the word mental health, I know some people who are listening might say, well, hang on a second. Why is it when we're dealing with white supremacists that we always talk about mental health issues, Uh whereas uh when we're talking about jihadists, you know, we, we talk about them as being ideologically motivated. I am not saying here that white supremacists are disproportionately likely to have mental health issues, nor am I saying that they have mental health issues. But what I am saying here is that mental health approaches, which are oftentimes based on counseling and social work methodologies, those sorts of methodologies are effective or can be effective with these audiences. So what we're trying to do is pair practitioners that have the right skill sets to engage with those individuals. We're trying to pair them up with these audiences online and advertising can be an effective way of us building that bridge. So you you essentially discovered, again, in in a manageable sample size, that people who may engage in uh, extremist propaganda or have these ideologies may be more likely to click on a mental health ad than somebody who is not. Is that is that the accurate way of sort of looking at that? That is accurate, yes. We found that white supremacists, so people who were at risk of white supremacy online, were 48 more, excuse me, 48% more likely than the general public to click on mental health ads when offered them. See, that's that's an incredible insight, because I think what that suggests is these folks want to find a way out. Exactly. And so when I hear that extremists and white nationalists, perhaps specifically, may be clicking on mental health ads at a higher rate, 
like that's actually hopeful. Absolutely. And you know, when you asked earlier how my work in the offline space has affected my approach in the online space, when I think back to when I was doing that field work 10 years ago, so many of the people I met who were in white nationalist movements then they weren't happy there. You know, they weren't satisfied by the movement. In fact, I remember sitting in in one of one of the um, informants that I was working with in, in their living room, and he said to me, you know, I, I, I want to leave this. I don't like this, but I don't know how to leave. And I don't have any other option because I've completely alienated my friends and my family. I don't have anywhere I can go if I want to leave this. And I, that really struck me at the time. And, there, you know, there are many others who felt a very similar way. You know, a lot of people who are in these movements are open to leaving, but they can't. You know, they feel like they can't. And so it's hard it's yeah. hard though, right, to get um people who are concerned about their safety and security who don't spend as much time, you know, investigating the motivations of extremists to say you need to have, you know, what some call what is it, radical compassion. Have you found any sort of pushback or skepticism that this is, you know, scalable because people are not necessarily interested in rehabilitating somebody who hates them. It is hard. And, you know, it's it can be especially hard for communities that are targeted by these groups to offer that sort of compassion to someone or to a group of people who have not offered that compassion back to you. So I, you know, that that can be hard. And I, I say that as an ethnic minority myself. Um, it can be difficult to find communities that are willing to undertake this work. Mm. Um, and it can also be difficult to, um, you know, get practitioners who have the right skills to do this work, to be willing to do this work with people who are in neo-Nazi movements. Um, that's hard. However, I firmly believe that this approach, if we can test it and generate the right level of evidence that it's effective, that this approach is scalable because it actually requires us not to, to find individuals around around America who are skilled at the ideology and who understand the ideology. It's not that we need, you know, 500 PhDs uh, <laughs> on, on white nationalist ideology to get people to leave. We actually just need to take our social workers, our mental health practitioners, and help them understand how to apply their same methods to this particular space. Mm. So the reason why I think this, this method offers us some optimistic, well, some optimism, and a way forward to dealing with ex extremism is because it is scalable. It requires not on, on detailed knowledge of the ideology, but on the skills that already exist in the community around us. So in terms of the practitioners that you mentioned, you know, mental health service providers, et cetera, the, the role of formers there, um, you know, is identifying formers to work with more difficult now? Is it something that is even necessary when you're trying to find people to um, provide services to those who might be in need? It's a, it's a good question. So, And I say full disclosure, I'm on the board of Life After Hate, which is an organization that was set up by former white supremacists. And, and they're, they're an important organization in America. Absolutely. I think the stories of formers can be incredibly important, especially just to, to serve as role models for individuals to, to basically demonstrate that change is possible. That story is incredibly important and that message is incredibly important to get across to people who feel trapped in these movements. So I think that the stories of, of formers are incredibly important. That said, I think relying on formers as the and believing that formers are the only practitioners that will be able to push this sort of work forward, I think that that belief is flawed. And the reason I believe that that belief is flawed is because we have a lot of evidence that social workers and mental health practitioners 
actually can make headway in one-on-one conversations with people who are at risk of white supremacy. That evidence comes largely from a European context in in countries like the countries I mentioned earlier in Mm -hmm. Sweden and Germany, where social work practitioners have been working with neo-Nazis to pull them out for decades and have really high levels of efficacy in doing that and low recidivism rates. Those sorts of interventions do not rely on former extremists delivering those interventions. Do you feel like the, the companies that you've been able to work with you know, they've obviously supported this work. You've had to do that through them. You know, are they doing enough? So I've always said that I'm a I'm a critical friend of the tech companies. You know, we we take funding from from companies like Google and Facebook, but I'm also highly critical of their approaches where where criticism is due. Um, are they doing anything? Yes, they are doing. They are taking act, increasing amounts of action on on white supremacy, especially companies like Facebook, mm-hmm. um, who've really stepped up over the last year and a half or so. Are they doing enough? My answer to that question would be no. I think there's still far more that can be done. Um, one of the challenges is, um, you know, the the efforts that were undertaken to deal with ISIS several years ago on these platforms, um, you know. A lot of these companies brought in a significant amount of expertise on on jihadism, on global jihadism, on ISIS itself, to be able to build up the right expertise internally to start moderating and removing content at scale. Um, even the smaller companies, I mean, Twitter did an incredibly effective job mm-hmm. at deplatforming ISIS from from Twitter several years ago. I mean, ago. it took a while, right? It because took a while. It like did. ISIS Joe won kept coming back until he was yeah. ISIS Joe 1942, but then eventually exactly. they've really done a much better exactly. job. Exactly, exactly. Now that same impact of deplatforming has been much slower when it comes to white supremacists. And that's for a whole range of reasons, including that white supremacists have a very vast lexicon, which hasn't necessarily been um, been been identified by a lot of the tech companies who are removing these platforms. So Absolutely. they've been able to remove very, very obvious examples and indicators, but there's still a whole range of indicators affiliated with these movements that have not yet been pulled down. One of the tactics that white supremacists are using, certainly in this country, is to use language that is just more mainstream by nature. Right. And so when you look at you know, we did a study on white supremacist propaganda around the country, 120% increase, you know, 2,713 incidents that we documented in 2019. A, a, a big portion of that were messages, tropes, and narratives that really echo and mirror the public discussion, but that they're using as a tactic to bring, you know, cast a wide net and then try to right. bring people in. They're increasingly using new terms and even using pop culture to, you know, right. confuse people, if you will. Right. Yeah, it, it's a real challenge. And these these groups walk the line very deliberately and they do it very well. The takedown stuff is is hard because somebody, especially if social media is being weaponized to target an individual, right? We want it off. I don't want to be harassed. I don't want to be doxxed. I don't want people to have that opportunity to spread their disinformation right. or hatred. And, you know, hatred and disinformation, I feel like, are often one of the same. But we also know that efforts to remove some of this just drives people to more concentrated echo chambers where we may not be able to access the data as well. Are we making our jobs more difficult in terms of identifying and then providing alternatives? 
We definitely are. And, you know, I say this as as someone who founded an organization which relies on us being able to find these movements through, you know, the indicators that they leave us on these sorts of platforms. Um, you know, I rely on 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 us being able to find them. And of course, removing them from from these platforms will make it more difficult, will make my job more difficult. I still believe it's a worthwhile. Yeah, we still got to do it. Yeah, we still have to do it. And you know what? It makes it makes their lives harder. And every step we we can take to make their lives harder means that less members of the public who are at risk will be exposed to this sort of content. Are you seeing sort of the age in which people are finding entry points into this movement changing? Or maybe we have just more awareness of it because we're actually able to track some of this down? So we... We focus most of our work on adult communities that are at risk, and that's largely because, as you've alluded to, dealing with minors comes with a whole range of complications, which we as an organization aren't necessarily equipped to deal with. In terms of the age of the audience that we're seeing, when we gather data online, we're also prevented in some cases from gathering information about users which are under 18. Got it. So you're redirecting maybe impacting 13, 14-year-olds. You don't always know because you're not focusing on the person, but rather their behavior. Exactly. And the data we get back from Google, we are unable to know what portion of our audience is under 18. We only receive metadata about the audience, which is over 18, which we can then break down into different age ranges. Would you want to know? I would want to know because it would help us tailor the message more effectively. Yeah. You know, we want to we want to tailor our campaigns and personalize our campaigns as much as possible. So a campaign that's going to a 13-year-old who's searching for information about how to join the KKK or how to join the Atomwaffen division, that information's got to look di- the information that's going to be attractive to that to that teenager is going to look different from the content that's going to be attractive to a 25-year-old. And I also think you hit it on the head when it comes to like we want to know more information information. We want, um, you know, these tech industry to not only be more transparent, but even maybe do more. And yet that's very big brothery. And there are some people who are going to be like, wow, the fact that certain information is even made available for study uh, is is a bit freaky. And yet, I think you said this earlier, if you're going to sell me stuff all day long that I don't need, then maybe you should try to, you know, give people an alternative from extremism. I think that's a fair bargain. Exactly. I agree. Um, When you testified at the um, House Committee on Foreign Affairs last year. It's hard to remember. There's been so many congressional testimonies on white supremacy in particular, which is good news because that wasn't always the case. It is. Um, You had provided some data on the social views of music featured, right, in the Christchurch shooters live stream video. Yes. I found that really fascinating. Yeah, so we we have we've known for a while and we've seen from the data that we've gathered online that music is an incredibly important way to socialize individuals into white supremacy movements. We find um, not only with some of our work with ADL around redirection that a huge proportion of the search traffic related to white supremacy is actually people searching for white power music for for white supremacy music. So when the perpetrator of the Christchurch attack very deliberately chose a soundtrack which was filled with ethno-nationalist and white supremacy-oriented music, we immediately knew that there was going to be a surge online in audiences that were attempting to access this music. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a dramatic spike globally in individuals who were searching for this music. Now, obviously, this music was also widely reported on by the mainstream media, but that does not. And so there there may have been members of the public that were just going to see what is this and, and learn more about it. But that doesn't minimize the harm 
that can come from communities across the world consuming music which has incredibly harmful lyrics and incredibly harmful um, messages spread about ethnic minorities. Your numbers are kind of shocking sometimes. They are, yeah. They are. After after Charlottesville, we tracked a 400% increase in attempts to access white nationalist content on Google. After Pittsburgh, it was around 200% increase in the immediate week following Pittsburgh. And then after El Paso, it was around a 56% increase in the week following El Paso. My concern is that even though that the percentage spike has decreased over time, that the volumes appear to be increasing. So it appears to be that after, after every one of these events, we never return to normal. The, the engagement mm. with white supremacy content returns back to a higher baseline than the year prior. That's chilling, actually, because we talk so much about the normalization of anti-Semitism and racism and hatred more broadly. And we think about that in the public discussion on our cable news channels, in the mouths of our elected officials. But that normalization really is what you're talking about, where the baseline is getting higher for the regular sort of engagement with this content. Did you sort of view yourself at five years old uh, of like fighting extremism and protecting communities? Is that like what you wanted to do or where did this come from? No, definitely not. I had no idea I was going to have a career doing this sort of work, nor did I think one could have a career doing this sort of work. I mean, I I grew up in New Jersey, the the kid of Indian immigrants, um, spent a lot of time as a kid thinking about race and thinking about identity, both my own identity and the identity of my friends and the community around me. Um, Being really honest, I spent a lot of time wishing I was white and thinking about Mm. white identity. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what got me into this in the first instance. I mean, my my earliest career, you know, my entry point um, coming out of college, my work was all on migration. I was interested in anti-racism activism as a concept, but then also interested in migrant rights. Um, And I spent a lot of time working in, in those areas. I I started to just look into concepts of kind of white, pure white identity and that that idea of purity mm-hmm. in racial identity because I was just fascinated by what would what would lead people to believe that kind of ethnic isolation is and isolationism as a as a concept was important. So I spent a lot of time just reading white supremacy propaganda while I was doing this work on anti-racism. And, and I guess what pushed me into this space was more frustration that I started to think, you know, anti-racism approaches, which are all about bringing together the great and the good, the people that already believe that racism is bad. Those those are important. That's an important approach. But I started to think, hang on a second. We're not actually talking to people on the other side and they believe this. And how are we going to convince them that they're wrong? They're not going to be convinced that they're wrong if we shout at them and tell them you're wrong. And you're like, hey, I've spent as much time, you know, thinking about white identity as you guys have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, ironically. Um, so no, when I was a kid, I never thought that I would work on these issues, nor did I think that one could have a career working on counter extremism that had never crossed my mind. Um, but you find yourself years later, falling into some weird career, which has you working on this stuff. And absolutely. Here we are. Uh, yeah, I, I whenever I, I, you know, interview people for for jobs at ADL, one of the questions I ask them is, so what exactly is it about looking at hate and extremism and violence every day that you want to do, right? And it's really important how they answer that question. But I think that intellectual curiosity is really a key, right? And it's sometimes based on trying to understand your own sort of role in society. Sometimes it's like, I just want to know. Yeah. I just want to know. Um, 
how do you how do you deal just on a, a personal level? How do you cope with the reality of what you are choosing to do every single day? Yeah, I mean, firstly, if I can say thank you for asking for that question, because it's something which I think is overlooked, um, particularly for those who spend their careers researching or, or working on this form of extremism. And it's it's tough. It is really tough. You know, you're coming into contact with really horrific content on a daily basis. You're possibly extreme uh, experiencing trolling. Um, you know, I've I've have had articles written about me in the Daily Stormer. Um, you know, I was mentioned in a, a document called War Plans by National Action before it was mm-hmm. banned in the UK. Um, you know, that that has that will have an impact on on you personally and also has an impact on your family and others who care about you. It's tough. Um, and that's why it's really important for people who are working on these issues to take really good care of themselves and to, you know, make sure that you know when is the right moment for you you to check out when you need to take a break and you know I don't say I, I can't say that I've always gotten it right <laughs> I've definitely um, have you know tipped over the edge several times where you just you immerse yourself too much in it and you need to then really pull back and take a look at, at how you've how you've how you've structured your your work and your life but um, you know it is really important for people who are researching this to um, to to be able to switch off and to find ways to switch off whatever is the right way for them. We encourage in our office because we've got a team of, uh, of now around 48. Um, and, you know, the team are coming into very into contact with various types of content, whether it's jihadist, white supremacist, Buddhist extremist, Hindu extremist, conspiracy theories, a whole range of content, which is upsetting. And we encourage amongst our team, we encourage them to talk to one another to take, you know, if they've seen something which is upsetting, take a moment and, and you know, go sit by yourself or find a colleague to go for a coffee with. Um, we, we encourage our team to access support. So we offer our team mental health support, um, confidential, nobody at the organization needs to know that they're accessing it, but it's covered by mm-hmm. us. Um, and we also encourage a, an atmosphere which, um, you know, we work on serious issues, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. Laughter is really important for people that work on these issues. You know, I know it's cheesy, but it's the truth. 100%. Um, it helps. And so, yeah, it, it's a really important question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, it can be tough, but it's just important for people who are working on this to be mindful. Yeah, I really appreciate that answer because the the team that I work with, you know, some of us have been doing this for, for many years. Others are newer and there's certain things that we can only talk to one another about and the ability to have a bit of a sense of humor with that and be able to have that sort of trust. And, um, and, and so I think having a small community of colleagues that can relate, um, I find very, uh, like I appreciate that with everybody that I work with. It's just, it is meaningful. And by the way, I think it's also meaningful to be able to talk to people outside, you know, in other organizations that do the same, cause we're all sort of in this together. Agreed. Um, what do you think listeners can do, right? It's, but I want people to be able to say, all right, maybe there's this one thing I can be more mindful of after listening to this. Do you have any thoughts about what that what that could be? Yeah, I would say for for listeners, the the main takeaway that I would want to give you is that change is possible, and that means if you're coming into contact with a family member or a friend or someone who you've known for a long time who's saying something which is worrying. They're not a lost cause. Never think anyone is a lost cause. It's still worth having a conversation with them. It's still worth letting them know, hey, I care about you, but that thing you said really bothered me. Change is possible. And that's the one message I would want to get across in a moment where it can seem incredibly uh, 
dismal. The prospects, the future can seem very can seem very uh, dismal at the moment, given you know some of the points I raised about the baseline resetting year on year. I know that can mm. be an upsetting prospect, but I am actually. Despite all of that, I'm hugely optimistic about what's possible if people are willing to cross that boundary and have conversations with someone who might seem a bit different from them. Where can uh, people go to find more information about Moonshot CVE? People can go to our website, moonshotcve.com. We do have a resources section where we try and put in the public domain as much data as we can. And we have a lot on there actually about the United States and about risk of white supremacy across the U.S. I really appreciate not only your perspective, but your ability to sort of maintain hope in the face of everything that we're, we're doing. It's really inspiring for, for those of us who get to, to work with you and your team. So thanks so much for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.